Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Mark chapter 8 today. And as you turn there, I want to just uh, let you know, kind of have a kind of a cool dad moment. We just started basketball uh, for my son. I know this is like a big moment for me. A, a lot of you guys, a couple years ago, I shared a story how uh, my basketball career came to a screeching halt when I didn't make the freshman basketball team. Um, and since then, I've lived with this like, you know, kind of undergrade sense of resentment, but my son still has a chance. And so we signed him up for the YMCA basketball uh, league this summer, and he had to be six years old. He just turned six and, and jumped in, and, and uh, he's just, like, so pumped for it. Like, he's, like, been practicing, and um, just had, he has, like, a bunch of Phoenix Suns gear because we're Christians. And he's just, so he has, like, all his, like, Phoenix Suns gear on as he, like, shows up there. Um, and we, like, and we talk about it a lot. He's never played before, and so we have, like, um, and so we, like, played at the park a little bit. So I'm, like, talking about, okay, we're, you know, you're on this team. There's other people playing, and you're going to want to, you want to win. You want to work your hardest, and all the things we've learned about dribbling and shooting and, like, just trying to coach him up as a dad. And, and uh, we, like, clearly have the same objective. Like, we want him to play basketball, do well, to have fun, and to do his best to win the game if he can. And... Uh, the, and my expectation was a little bit different than how it kind of worked out. Augustine had a different way of trying to accomplish that W. Um, and so I wanted to show you just a little, little snippet of just kind of an unconventional way Augustine thought that he could help win this basketball uh, game for his team. So should be hopefully a little, little clip. He's, uh, he's doing something here. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> like, doesn't tip off, you know, just really moving. <laughs> so, yeah, we can stop, but. <laughs> Um, to, my, to his surprise, they lost the game. So. But he did his best. Um, so, uh, it was this moment where I was just like, I, I think we're on the same page on some levels, but there's just a difference in how that's going to come about. You know, like, we get it, there's a ball going in the hoop and things like that, and all of a sudden, some sort of, like, I think you learned from Moana or something like that, some sort of, like, weird YMCA Tai Chi things happening in the middle of the court. Apparently, it didn't work enough. Um, but I think as we arrive at Mark chapter 8, there is this, this intersection in the book that scholars would agree is the central theme of Mark's entire gospel. It's where everything converges. This is very common within Hebrew literature, where the central theme wouldn't climax at the end, but in the middle. And so the entire book is leading up to this moment. And we're going to find ourselves where the title of this series comes from, this question, who is Jesus? And we, kind of, we finally find our answer. But along with the answer, 
comes with surprise. It comes that the right answer is given. There's an agreement upon who Jesus is, but the way Jesus is going to bring about this expected kingdom is about as shocking as Augustine's Tai Chi work in an MBA rec league. It's something that no one would have thought, no one would have expected. And so Mark chapter 8 is Jesus not just revealing the answer to the question we've been asking the past few weeks and that the early church in a persecuted Roman city would have been asking as they're fearing for their life, hidden in the catacombs, as their pastor Peter has just been crucified upside down and they're wondering who is Jesus and this whole book is leading up to this moment where we finally get the answer that we've all been expecting but yet the means in which that's accomplished could not have been more provocative and shocking. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. And we're going to be looking at three different themes that we find at the end of Mark chapter 8 and early chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the central point, the cruciform path, and the conquering and conceding power that encompasses Jesus' cruciform kingdom. And so before we begin, I'm just going to go ahead and pray. And for those of you guys who have your Bible out, we're going to be in Mark 8, chapter 27, chapter 8, verse 27. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you so much that as we come with this burning question of who you are, that, Lord, you don't just give us an answer, you give us a way. Lord, you don't just give us the end, you give us the means. And to be honest, God, many of us want to arrive at the answer, but Lord, the, the journey that you've called us on is something that for many of us feels out of place. And so Lord, as we look at the words of Jesus, kind of the central focal point of Mark's gospel, I pray that this would become one of those moments for us in our own walk with Jesus where a foundation is laid, where the this, this cement begins to dry not just of who you are, but the way in which you've lived and the way in which you call us to live in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Verse 29, I think, is one of the most profound moments in all of Scripture. He says, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And so we arrive at this text where they have... Jesus poses this question first to the culture around them. Who do people say that I am? And you'll notice it's favorable. He's either a prophet, he's either Elijah. There's, there's something good stirring around Jesus and the public opinion of him. But then he turns to his disciples and he says, how about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers without hesitation, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And for those who might be new to the scriptures, 
There is a thread woven throughout the entire Old Testament of this idea that there would be a rescuer that God would send, an anointed king from the line of David in the way of Moses that would rescue and redeem God's people out of slavery and oppression. And this this burning expectation, this building sense of this one's going to come had kind of reached the height of where it was. And so Peter stands up in the midst of his disciples, says, I know who you are. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the promised one, the Christ, the Messiah, the one God has sent, the one the prophets have foretold. You're it. And Jesus pulls him aside and says, don't tell anyone this yet. And in order for us to understand the significance of that statement, it helps to understand where Jesus asked that question. He chose a specific setting to pose that to his disciples. He actually took a two-day journey from the Galilean area to the very northern border between Israel's land and, um, and kind of pagan territory to this city called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, you can go and visit it today. Um, I was there a couple of years ago. Um, it's beautiful. There's all these waterfalls coming down. And, and this city had a very specific uh, heritage that Jesus waited till he was close to it to ask this question. This city was originally conquered by Caesar Augustus. It was later on given to Herod the Great as a gift, who then gave it to his son Philip. And so Philip named it as an honor to Caesar, Caesarea Philippi, after Caesar and himself. And there's a long history around this city that there was this Greek god named Pan. And Pan was kind of this goat-shaped human figure that actually influences a lot of kind of the satanic imagery that people have today. And interestingly enough, he's the only god in the Greek pantheon who actually said died. And he died the same year that Jesus was born. The early church later on made the correlation of these two things, that this God that represented the pagan world, represented kind of sexuality, represented fruitfulness, and kind of this wild uh, person died the same year that Jesus was born. But at his tomb, there was this mouth of a spring that fed into the Jordan River. You can, and it's still active today. You can literally go and peer into this, this brook, this spring that comes out of this cave. And what they believed is that at this, at this place was the portal to the underworld. It's what was often called the gates of Hades. This is the same part in Matthew's gospel where Jesus goes on to say, Peter, you're right. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. And so there is a very specific reason that Jesus asked them this question there at the center point of pagan ritualistic world that was so dark. This is where they offered sacri child sacrifices. It was everything antithetical to the kingdom of God. And it's at that place that Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And that Peter speaks up and says, you're the one who's bringing about a different kind of kingdom than everything that we're seeing here. It was this bold and accurate statement. And in this place, as Peter stands up, though, the, the correct answer also was accompanied by a wrong expectation. 
You see, the idea, the, the kind of the Jewish imagination around the Messiah was largely formed around the idea of kind of a militaristic leader who would set them free. The most heroic and the most common that people would have looked to about 200 years before was a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus. And Judah Maccabeus was a priest who led a revolt in 167 BCE that, that actually overthrew uh, kind of the, the pagan rulers of that day who set up Greek gods inside the temple. And so Judah Maccabeus led this violent, militaristic, yet holy revolt and overthrew it. And that's the day that Jewish people to this day celebrate Hanukkah. And so they're looking for someone like that. Someone who's willing to lead the charge against the horrible, oppressive things that these false gods and these foreign countries have put on them. And so when, and so when Peter stands up and says, you're the Messiah, we can almost understand at that moment that Peter's expecting a certain kind of Messiah. And this is where things begin to, to change a little bit and begin to start shifting. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, says, We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. There's something that our expectation of who God is forms our faith. And Mark chapter 8 challenges not the correct answer, but the expectation we have of how that actually comes to play. Scott McKnight famously, he's a professor, famously would give these students these two tests. One of them would be a test to his incoming students of just kind of an interest form of, look, who are you, who are you, what are things you like, what are things that make you angry, things that give you joy, what are your political inclinations and stances and all things like that. And at the end of the year, he would give a test about who is Jesus, and, and he would ask them without their knowing essentially the same questions, and he would compare the test and realize that every single student over 90% of the time, thought that Jesus was exactly like them. And this is something within our human tendency to actually assume that God is just like us. And this is where things begin to shift. That Jesus, not, he, in Matthew, according to Matthew's gospel, he says, you're correct. I am the Messiah. I'm going to build my church in the gates of Hades. This place, a physical place, this will not prevail against the advancement of my church. It's a powerful moment. But then, in verse 31, it says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Listen, he spoke plainly about this. But Jesus isn't speaking parables here. He's letting them know, I'm going to die. And the next eight chapters, the rest of Mark is him heading towards Calvary. And as he explains this plainly to them, and that after his death, it was all in resurrection, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, which I think is also one of the most bizarre verses in all of Scripture. Can you imagine rebuking God? But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Well, that changed. 
literally just looked at Peter and said, upon this rock I will build my church. And the next breath, he says, calls him Satan. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must, do, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And so it seemed things were going so well. Here they are at this pivotal moment, kind of this cultural epicenter of paganism. And, Pete, and Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Messiah. And he says, you are correct. And then he says, let me explain how I'm going to bring about my kingdom. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be tried by the chief priest. I'm going to suffer and eventually die a gruesome death on the cross. And then I'll be raised in three days. And Peter's mind just explodes. He's like, wait, 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 wait. And so much so that he pulls Jesus aside to save him face. He says, oh, oh Jesus, I don't, I, don't think you, I don't think you understand what it means to be a Messiah. And he pulls him aside and literally rebukes, is rebuking Jesus because he wants a kingdom without a cross. And if there's one pastoral warning I could give you, is that if you are ever hearing a version of Christianity that lacks the cross, then that you need to be leery of any form of the gospel that that is. Because you see, Peter had the right answer, but he had the wrong expectation of how that would come about. And so as he pulls him aside into this secret place and he says, geez, what are you talking about? You can't die. You're leading us into freedom. You're the one we've been waiting for. What is this talk about suffering? What's this weird thing talking about resurrection? This, this can't possibly be your vehicle to bring about the kingdom we've been waiting for for generations. And Jesus looks at Peter and he starts rebuking him. And he, to the point where he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, for us to understand what this means, it's not like that Peter literally all of a sudden like grew horns in that moment. And really not that he was even possessed by a demon in that moment. You see the word Satan in the biblical sense is like a title. It's something you do. And it means the accuser. And so Jesus is now, or sorry, Peter is playing the role of Satan. He's playing the role of the accuser. And it's the same script he's been playing since the garden when he tells Adam and Eve, you can have all of this without any sort of submission to God. It's the same script he gives to Jesus as he brings him into the wilderness. You can have the nations, you can have all of this, but you don't have to go to the cross. And this is why Jesus says, I know this script and I know what you're saying here and you're playing the role of Satan because you're trying to offer me a kingdom without the cross. And so he said, literally says, get behind me. Eugene Peterson makes an interesting note here in his version in the message where he says, Peter, get out of my way. Satan, get lost. You have no idea how God works. 
And I love Eugene Peterson's interpretation by saying, get out of my way. There's two things happening. Number one, it's the apprentice's role to be in the back. And so by Peter stepping in front of Jesus, he's usurping his role as Messiah and his as an apprentice. And so Jesus is saying, get in your proper place. And the second thing he's doing is by standing here, you're in my way to the cross. And by doing this, Jesus says, anything that is in the way of the kingdom of God and the cruciform life, you need to get out of your way. And so as he removes Peter in this instance, I love this, he calls the crowd to himself. At this point, we have, no, we have no reference that there's a crowd even there. But apparently, this is such a big deal that he calls a crowd around him. He says, okay, come on. Let's not mess this up again. And he gathers anyone that's around him at that moment. He's not just talking to Peter. He's not just talking to his disciples. And he starts saying these words. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple, which is, again, this is a massive inclusive statement. If anyone wants to be my disciple... He must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And so what he's doing here is not saying, this is not just my path, this is your path. This is the path of Christianity. It's a cruciformed life. And the reason I think this is so important is not just for a persecuted church 2,000 years ago who this would resonate in their heart. They're like, okay, something's not wrong here. Something is right. But I think it matters for us 2,000 years later when we constantly are trying to find some sort of spirituality or religious tradition that allows us to receive some version of the kingdom of God without any sense of sacrifice. And Jesus says, listen, anyone can come. This is not some sort of exclusive club. If anyone wants to follow me, it's as broad as that. But know this. I am the one you've been wanting for, but the way in which you follow me will shock you. And the reason why I know this is so prevalent is because even in my own life, whenever I'm faced with anything that feels like a cross, suffering, heartache, loss, my immediate question is, God, where are you? But if I look at the centerpiece of Mark chapter 8, what I start realizing is, oh, maybe I'm closer to Jesus than I ever realized. Maybe the cruciform parts of my life are an invitation to identify with a suffering servant who would lay down his life for his people, that there's not something wrong with me and there's not something wrong with God. There's something wrong with my expectation of how his kingdom comes about. And, and, and Peter didn't know what to do with it, and sometimes we don't either. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his address to Westminster Chapel in 1950, says, the events that happened on Calvary's Hill are in every respect the most crucial in all of human history. To Christian people, there is nothing more important than this. Every one of us must ask ourselves this question, does the cross mean that to us? Is it to us everything, the power of God, the wisdom of God? Is it the whole basis of our life? Is it the thing that we rely on in every respect? Now, I want to clarify something. Living a cruciformed life 
does not mean that we blindly embrace all suffering as this is, this is what is some sort of kind of weird neo-stoic kind of ideal. Because the cross, although it is marked by suffering, ultimately is driven by love. And so what does it mean to follow Jesus in a cruciform life? It means that your life, please hear me, is marked by sacrificial love. Full stop. And so if you want to follow Jesus, but that doesn't involve you laying down your life in the same manner in which Jesus laid down his life for you, then you may have the right answer, but the wrong journey. Jesus is inviting us into a cruciform life, which ultimately results in a sacrificial love. Listen to what he writes, Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And this is what Jesus is inviting. He says, listen, the, the cross isn't just my journey. It's all of our journey. This is all of us. This is why John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, says the rulers sneered at him, talking about Jesus on the cross, shouting, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Their words spoken as an insult were the literal truth. He could not save himself and others simultaneously. He chose to sacrifice himself in order to save the world. And this is, this is, the, this is both the central theme and the shocking theme of Mark chapter 8, the center of his book. And keep in mind, he's writing to a highly persecuted church fearing for their life, who their pastor who's just been crucified upside down. And he writes to them saying this, don't be surprised in thinking that you're following the wrong Messiah. You are following the right Messiah and your life is following the right path. You are living a life of sacrificial love. You are willing to lay down your life for God and for others. And by doing that, you are identifying more in a more pure way with Jesus than you could ever, ever imagine. And so I want to just take a minute and for us to be able to kind of process that a bit. What does it look like for us to have a cruciform life? What does it look like? Not just for us to say Jesus is the Messiah. That's great. We should arrive there. But for us to say, what does it look like for us to live a life of self-sacrificial love? And it would be easy for us to look at someone like Pastor Gustavo, who's literally will sell his cars and spend his bonus checks to build a cafeteria for, for refugees coming from all around the world. And that is for sure a beautiful version of this. But I also want to just make this, this can be both huge and profound and it can also be supernaturally ordinary. So just a couple questions for us to ponder that if as followers of Jesus, we are signing up for a cruciform life, for a self-sacrificial life, I think one of the greatest questions we can ask is, 
how are we doing loving those who are hardest to love? What does it look like for us to love our enemy? George Woodruff says the test of Christianity is not just loving Jesus, it's loving Judas. What does it look like to love your spouse? What does it look like for you to love your roommate who gets on your nerves? For you who are taking care of your aging parents? For those of you who have young children and you're waking up two, three, four times a night? And for us, we assign these things, I guess this is just a part of life, but for Jesus, no, this is a part of the gospel. When we live a life of self-sacrificial love, we are identifying with the Messiah who came to give of his life. What does it look like for you to act with integrity in your workplace, even if that means you don't get the promotion that you've been wanting? What does it look like for those of you who struggle with chronic pain or, or deep sense of loss? And you continue to choose to love to the best of your ability around you. I think all of those things are absolutely vital, beautiful displays of what does it mean to follow Jesus. And I think in contrast, there, there is a prevalent version of Christianity that says this, Jesus is only here to make you happy. And I, I don't think I can read Mark chapter 8 and believe that. Jesus is here to turn us into people of love. And the way he turns us into the people of love is by the way of the cross. And but what happens, and follow me full circle here, when we choose to walk the way of Jesus into self-sacrificial, self-giving love at the expense of our own desires or needs, and we live like this, what happened to Jesus is promised to us, and that is ultimately abundant resurrection life. And that's way more significant than temporal sorts of pleasure. This is why Jesus, why would you want to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? And so I would just encourage us, who is Jesus? Jesus offers you something that doesn't just look like kind of temporal experiences, but it's something that is eternal. It's something that's weighted that ultimately transforms your soul. You heard Stevie mention earlier that we're going to be having baptisms at the end of August. I can't think of a more beautiful sacrament than for us to come and gather as a community and for people to say, I'm going to go immerse myself underwater and come up to display the narrative of what Jesus is doing in my life. In Galatians 2, Paul talks about, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. See, baptism, it's, it's a watery grave. It's a coffin. We go and we're, we're telling a story as we do this that our old self, this self-driven kind of story is coming underneath us, passing away. And as we come up out of the water, it's this picture of I live differently now, a resurrection type of life, a cruciform kind of life that will ultimately result in how I love people. And as Jesus is giving this for them, an earth-shattering kind of message. He ends it with a very peculiar theological statement that I want to kind of end our sermon on. In Mark chapter 9, verse 1, he says this. He said to them, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. 
And the question right there going in their mind, again, still locked in this sort of militaristic, triumphalist, victory, victory kind of thing of like, we're going to win this over, probably things like, great, some of us may not make it, but eventually we will rule the Roman oppressors. And as one by one, they started being martyred. And Peter, the person who most scholars believe influenced Mark's gospel, was himself martyred and crucified upside down before the gospel was even finished. They start to wonder, what does that mean, that some of us standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come in power? Which makes ourselves ask the question, what does it mean for God's kingdom to come in power? Because if all of these people died, that kingdom looked different than what they initially thought. And so what I want to kind of end our time on this morning is we have to ask ourselves the question, what, is it, what did Jesus mean when he said the kingdom of God would come in power? If it didn't mean that the Jewish people all of a sudden had kind of sociopolitical rule over the Roman government of the time, what does it mean? And although there's different speculations on what that actually means, what we can conclude is it has something to do with Jesus' death, resurrection, and the coming of the Spirit. That for Jesus, that is what marked the kingdom of God coming in power. Not a circumstantial, militaristic shift, but it was the giving of himself through his Spirit by means of a life laid down and a body resurrected that would result in people being able to say, I can now walk through anything in this life and continue to live in the way of Jesus, so much so that not even death itself could stop the kingdom of God coming in its power. I want to talk to you a little bit about Peter. I've said it a couple times now that Peter ended up losing his life in Rome. Underneath Caesar Nero's kind of wild mental break where he starts crucifying or starts punishing all the Christians for the, Rome, or the fire in Rome that he started. At the end of John's gospel, it talks in length about how Peter denied Jesus three times. And at the end of his gospel, Jesus comes and meets him at the shore and he restores Peter three times. And he asks him this question, do you love me? I want to jump to the third one in John 21. It says this, the third time he said to Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following him. This is the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? <laughs> Don't you love Peter? It's so good. Will he die? <laughs> Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. I love that 
in the literal act of Jesus restoring Peter, you're back in. Feed my sheep. Follow me. In the same breath, he says, this is how you will die. And I think that there's something here as as Westerners that we don't have a context of religious persecution. We don't have a context where, where maybe following Jesus for us might look like you lose a couple friends or you might not get ahead as much as work or things like that. But I just want to say, for Jesus, wrapped up in his message is this idea. There's, I love you so much. I'm calling you to live the life that I did. And it was formed by the cross. And what happens is I begin to start thinking about that as a church is what would it look like? I mean, guys, this is, this is a wild mental exercise here. What would it look like for a small local church on the coast of San Diego to not only agree that Jesus is the Messiah, but to say yes to a cruciform life? I will love my spouse till it hurts. I will love the poor till it costs me. I will love my enemy at my own expense. I will lay down my life for those around me, not because I'm so great, but because I have been so loved in that manner by my own father that it's changed me. That when we become a community of people that have received that type of love, and have been called into that same way of life. The prediction that Jesus made is that kind of church the gates of hell don't prevail against. That kind of church. The kind of church that says, Jesus, you have everything in me. You're, you're not just looking for the right answers or the right theology. You want a life surrendered over to you for the act and the sake of loving you and loving others in the same way that you laid down your own life as an act of loving your Father and loving us. And this is why in 1 John 4, 9, it says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only, one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice for our sins. So here's, I would just like to pause for a moment and say this. The goal of this message cannot be for you guys to go and sacrifice more. It cannot be for you to be like, well, I guess I got to go work harder at loving people. Maybe I'm not doing enough. Because according to 1 John, that does not produce in us the kind of love that Jesus has laid out for us. You see, according to 1 John, the only way we love the way that Jesus loved us is to first receive that kind of love in us. It's the only way. The only way I can love Jen in the way that Jesus has loved me is if I posture my life in a way that is constantly realizing the depth and the love that Jesus has gave me. It's the only way. The only way that I will love my neighbor. By the way, I do all of these things imperfectly. Is when I realize that Jesus saw me as his neighbor and extended out to me a divine hospi- invitation to hospitality, to be adopted in his family. The only way I will love the poor is to first understand that I myself am poor and that Jesus came as a result of his sacrifice and gave me his, in, his eternal inheritance. 
The only way I'll ever love my enemy is for, for, to, for me to first realize that when I was an enemy of God, that is the exact moment when Christ chose to die for me. And I hope this is making sense. That if we are to follow Jesus to the cross, we must first realize that that cross was placed there, that sacrifice was made as an invitation to loving us so that it can become a life that we give over to loving others. This is why David Benner in his book, Surrender to Love, says, growth in love is not an accomplishment, but the receipt of a gift. So I'm going to say it again. Growth in love, cruciform love, is not an accomplishment. It's not a badge we wear and just say, look at how many enemies I'm loving. It just means you have a lot of enemies, which is a whole other thing you need to work through. Growth in love is not an accomplishment. It's the receipt of a gift. When someone says, why do you love that way? You just show them the receipt of what was already purchased, your life that was costly for Jesus. Because the only way we get to live a cruciform life is to realize that we are loved by a crucified king. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I would love to just sing those words again, this song. It's one of my favorites to just build my life. This prayer, I want to build my life on love. And my hope is that this isn't just, again, a theological concept we're wrestling with this morning. My hope is that you would leave here identifying with someone in your life God is asking you to love sacrificially. By the way, a quick disclaimer, and I have to say this, if you are in an abusive relationship or a dangerous relationship, please hear me, sometimes the most loving thing that you can do is to remove yourself from that, to get the help that you need and for them to get the help they need. Loving your enemy, loving someone who's hard to love is not an excuse for you to stay in a place of danger or an environment that is ultimately not what God would have for you. Does that make sense? I just, I wanted to say that. But the reality is, is there are many of us that are in a context, it's not, it's not, it's not abusive, it's not dangerous, it's just hard. It's just hard to wake up and to continue to love and serve the people that are around me, and I'm tired. And the invitation this morning is not do better. The invitation this morning is just remember how much you're loved. Just remember, just take a moment and realize the expense in which Jesus paid just to show you how much you mean to him. Because if you can think about that now and tomorrow and the next day, watch what will happen to your heart, to those around you who are hard to love, those who think differently than you, vote differently than you, those who've wronged you, those who've never said sorry, those who you harbor regret against. And watch as you see the powerful love of Jesus just start to to melt away the ice around your heart. Watch how he moves you into this cruciform life of loving other other people, knowing that when we lay down our life, we get the same outcome that Jesus had. I'll say this one more time before we pray. The only way we get to live a cruciform life is to realize that we are loved by a crucified king. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.